Thank you for tuning in to the Mind Meld Podcast with Dave Perry. This is the Mind Meld Podcast. I am Dave Perry. Today is a special episode because today's guest and who I'm sitting across from is the creator of Dave Perry, the devil. <laughs> Hello. No. Hello, Beelzebub. Thank you for coming on the show. <clears throat> Hello. Did I, did I blow your, your, your identity? <laughs> That's why I said it's important that we're not filming because no one knows what you look like. Do you remember the usual suspects? Yes, you do. We watched it together with Kevin Spacey. He's being interviewed in a in a police station for the. He's he's recalling a bunch of crimes that have happened, and he's very meek and he cries when the cops yell at him, and and he's telling the story about how he's a gimp and everyone took advantage of him, and he's just a a, a lowly cripple is what he calls himself over, and he's talking about all these other uh, criminal masterminds that pulled off this giant heroin heist, and he keeps referring to this guy Kaiser Sose, Kaiser Sose. And, um, I mean, he, he, he convinces the cops by the end of the movie, spoilers, just, you know, <laughs> this movie came out in the early nineties, but, um, that he, I mean, he pisses his pants. Like he, he builds up this whole facade of like how weak and, and spineless and purposeless it is. And he couldn't possibly be a part of these crimes that were committed because he's this stupid gimp and, and completely weak and pathetic and has no courage. And then they finally let him go because he's such a slobbering piss pants mess. <laughs> And then as he, and he like literally like he like limps, he has got this like gimp leg that he like drags behind him. And then there's this famous sequence at the end of the movie, which it's panning back between Kevin Spacey's character leaving the police station and the cop sitting there and kind of like looking through the notes of this long interview, you know, two hour interview, the length of the movie of all the events that had just transpired. And as he's like looking through the notes, he's like taking a sip of his, coffee and looks at the looks in a mirror and sees that the the bottom of his coffee mug says something like made in Skokie, Illinois. And then he remembers to the beginning of the interview that Kevin Spacey's character said like, Oh yeah, I'm just a stupid kid that grew up in Skokie, Illinois. And he keeps having all these realizations that like the whole story that he told was just things in the, in the room that he just worked in and it's all bullshit. And as he's piecing it together, it's showing Kevin Spacey outside or how his gimp, completely goes away and turns into this confident walk. And it turns out that Kevin Spacey is Kaiser Sose and he completely disappears. And the last line of the movie, which I loved, which is, I mean, it happens earlier in the movie, but then it like reoccurs to him. And we said the greatest trick that the devil, that the devil ever pulled is convincing everyone that he doesn't exist. Then it goes, poof, and then that's the end of the movie. You don't remember that at all? No. Okay, well, today's guest is my mom. <laughs> but I would like to ask, like, why did you share all that with me? Um, Am I the gimp or the devil? I was the, well, I was, I was saying that because <laughs> I initially introduced you fraudulently as the devil. And but I was saying that because you weren't being filmed, like your identity wouldn't be given away. But even if you were filmed, there you could, I was thinking that you could have this whole facade. My, the brain that you in part are responsible for because I share your genetics goes on really deep, windy, curvy tangents. And I can think of one particular reference and it might not even be anything that we're talking to, but tangentially it occurs to me within a fraction of a second after bringing up something just like the devil. And then my mind goes to that famous line from usual suspects, which I think is a movie we watched together, but we've watched a lot of movies together. Haven't yes, we? we have. We do love movies. I think that that is definitely something You've given me many, you've given me many gifts in life, but I think you've also, I don't feel like you've ever forced anything like, like you will be a ballerina dancer. <laughs> um, but I think you introduced me to a lot of things that I embraced and I don't think necessarily because just because you introduce it to me. Well, if my mom likes it, then I guess I have to like it. I always feel that like, especially when it comes to music, I feel very fortunate in that a lot of the music that I naturally gravitated towards was simply because it resonated with me or because I liked it for deeply personal foundation. It had nothing to do with like, well, all the cool kids are, you know, listening to Elton John cassettes with their mom or like it had nothing to do with what was on MTV. I didn't even really like the same music that 
my brothers, your sons, Chris and Sean, like uh, the kids at school, all this always listen to very different, much more mainstream kind of happy Dave Matthews band type music. And I was listening to Nine Inch Nails and Stabbing Westward. And what was that? Um, that guitar player that we enjoyed tapes of in the car and it was lee rittenauer lee rittenauer yes yeah so i think that i've explained on this podcast before that my trials and tribulations as a as a youngin and not being able to hear and communicate for a long period of time and as i was coming out of that for reasons i still can't necessarily put my finger on other than just kind of what i preface this with is that it just resonated with me is there was something about like instrumental fusiony jazz almost like modern although it was the 80s but you know like not not necessarily i wasn't like mom grab the dizzy gillespie tapes but there was something about really synthy heavy guitar forward jazz that i really that really resonated with me i remember listening to pat metheny kind of early on as well and do you remember that uh when you you used to work at a, a big music store yes when, i did when you lived in you've lived in wisconsin for different chapters of your life but and you lived in texas for a chapter of your life but before that texas chapter you lived in milwaukee and you worked at this large music store called casio and is that that's no longer there it is no longer there gotcha but i remember when you worked there you occasionally would get tickets to shows as the byproduct of like working in a musical industry does that sound familiar to you yes i remember two shows i remember one you and i went together and one chris and i went together you got tickets for Pat Metheny, who is this just like a savant level. It really bothers me in today's day. And it's been this way for a while, but the the term like genius gets thrown around very loosely. Like Kanye West is someone who very frequently gets called a genius. And I think that's very uh, insulting uh, to actual musical geniuses, like true. I think he is, you know who I'm talking about when I say Kanye West? Well, I certainly know the name. Yeah. So he's like a controversial character. And he says stupid things that get people talking about him. And he wears interesting clothes and he's innovative. He may even be like a trailblazer within hip hop. But like, I think calling him a genius discounts and discredits all actual musical geniuses that precede him. And so anyways, I would call someone like Pat Metheny a, a savant and maybe even genius level talent of just, I guess it would be classified as jazz, but it's just this like kind of how like Bela Fleck who you like. Oh, I do. He can do jazz, uh, classical. He has Bela Fleck and the Fleck Tones, which is like the bluegrass. Yeah, bluegrass, plucky stuff. He can do classics and Christmas music. Like So Pat Metheny is a guy like that. And you got Chris and I tickets to go see that. And we went, not knowing, I mean, I just remember listening to him a little bit when I was younger and liking that kind of music, again, for no particular reason other than like this. It's scratching some itch I didn't know that I had, but it's not like Pat Metheny is like, here's the number one Casey Case and be like, here's that number one song from Pat Metheny. <laughs> And so Chris and I go and the, we, they played for 40 minutes straight before stopping to like say, hey, thanks for coming out. So they play 40 minutes straight. And then Pat's like, that's the first song off of our new album. Like literally it's 40 minute open. So anyways, I just, I appreciate good songwriting. I love things like Harmony, which you taught me when I was very young. But there's also this whole other category of music that I feel like you helped introduce me to that doesn't, it doesn't need to have uh, like commercially acceptable form, like intro, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, little bridge, chorus, and so anyways, I appreciate that. But the other take, the other tickets that you got was you and I went to a uh, Leanne Rhymes Christmas show. Do you remember that? No. Well, we 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 walked out after three songs. <laughs> Maybe that's why. I think we were both sitting there and we were excited about doing something together and going to a show together. And were I we think we at the Riverside. Yes, we were at the Riverside. Okay, then I do remember. Yeah. The Riverside is a very beautiful historic theater in Milwaukee. And I think we were excited about going out and doing something together. And I think we were both having these quiet moments to ourselves during the show and be like, well, I don't, I don't want to say, I don't want to ruin tonight. I don't want to be a curmudgeon and be like, well, I, I kind of want to go. And I think after the third song, we were both like, yeah, let's get the fuck out of here. So. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that reminds me of, um, when I first moved to Austin, I think you came and visited me and I was living in this, uh, a, like a long-term Airbnb, which is pretty common here in Austin. And, uh, I was in an interesting situation with the opportunity I had with finding that place because it was owned by two members of the Austin Symphony Orchestra. And that's a seasonal job, I guess. So during the time 
they were basically out of town most of the time during the six months that I lived in their home, which allowed them to Airbnb. And it was, it worked out very well for me, but uh, as part of like a, Hey, welcome to Austin or whatever. They gave me tickets to one of the like off season. They still have off season shows. It's just the two people who own this house. were not in that version of the Austin symphony orchestra. Anyways, it was a musical version, an operatic musical version of, of mice and men. Oh, I didn't know that had been done. Yeah, me either. And I don't think it should have been done. <laughs> um, at first I was like, oh, this is, that's awesome. That you're just like giving me tickets. And like, it's, I, well, I was very gung ho about when I moved to Austin of like, try all the things. Mm-hmm. And again, you've instilled a deep love of music in me. And also I think you uh, early on equipped me with the, the importance of, of knowing, of being open-minded to other kinds of music and different musical opportunities. And even things like, I remember how much you and I loved Stomp and the Blue Man Group. Yes. And that's, I don't even know how you would categorize that. How would you categorize that? Well, Stomp is, is it's almost visceral because y- you feel it as much as you're watching it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's all percussive. It's guys with trash can lids and pots and pans and industrial piping and power tools and brooms and water yeah uh, yeah but i don't even know what that what the genre is you know it's not uh, i don't know it's interesting but that's the whole point like if you if you're only like i only like folk music or whatever you're missing out on a ton of good music including probably the the variety of musicians and bands and pieces that inspired the artists that you love because most musicians are, are want to ab- absorb and experience as much music as possible. What was the name of the the DVDs that I have where all the music is synthesized and it's perfectly coordinated with videos like this tuba-like thing is spitting out ping pong balls and the ping pong balls are hitting the chimes on a on a bell and so it's going doing, 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 doing. yeah what was that i feel that it was called it was it's some pun with like animation and music and and oh maybe and music yeah, or like animusetronic or something like that um that was great yeah i don't even remember how we initially found that but it, do you know what a rube goldberg machine is oh yes the very involved path that maybe a marble yeah. will travel through and sets off this, that, and the other thing on its way down yeah. to, to like pour you a cup of coffee. Yeah, it's it. this incredibly elaborate device that does some remedial task. And it's about the, I feel like it's the living embodiment of like, it's about the journey, not the destination. Uh, and I feel like in a way, it's kind of like, I mean, it's not, the, these videos are not doing a remedial test, but they are that complex because it's not just the tuba. Then behind the tuba are these gears. And every time the gears switch gears, the song changes keys. And then the when the gears aren't intertwined with each other, they're hitting like the keys of a vibraphone or something. And then those send vibrations that shoot off little darts that hit the strings on a guitar or something. And it was this, it was like if you had cameras inside of a piano and... You know, in the most basic sense, if you, I guess if you don't know, if you're listening that when you're playing a piano, it's technically classified as a percussion instrument because on the inside of a piano, there is a set of hammers that is assigned to every single key that you push. And then when you push that, the hammer shoots up and strikes a set of strings that correspond to that key. So, and if you're able to ever look inside a piano while someone's playing, it's pretty interesting, but it's like that times a thousand where it's like. In some of it's for like instruments that aren't even like actual instruments. They're just these like, I so guess. Sound makers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like if you heard a synthesizer and it's some weird space age sound and you're like, what What do you think that instrument looks like? It's kind of hard to envision. Well, you could picture um, the band from the cantina in Star Wars. Star Wars. Anyway, all those instruments are made up. Yeah. But you, I mean, allegedly, you don't know. You haven't been to a, a Tatooine or tat, Tatooine. Is that the planet that they're on? Well, I don't like being challenged yeah. like that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, you can live in your nice little bubble and just pretend that everything that you haven't seen personally is made up and fake. Right? Ne- next question. <laughs> Where were you on September 12th, 2001? So, <laughs> just, I, throw, just throwing you off. 
It's okay. You don't have to answer it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I do have on some of my notes here, um, and I guess that's uh, uh, kind of a bizarre downer transition, but I was thinking about you and I have been close for a long time. I feel like there's a lot of people that aren't super close with either of their parents, let alone just a single one. Right. And I feel like you and I have both enjoyed very much so the closeness that we have, right? And then we're able to have like very open, transparent, frank emotional conversations and it's been that way for a long time yes and i i i feel fortunate about that and it's 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 a two-way thing it wasn't all just me being a great mom or you being a right um, adequate son adequate son yes um <laughs> but uh i forgot my train of thought well i think it's allowed us to broach some oh, un- excuse go- me yeah, it's because i think of you you and your brothers we live together just as the two of us the longest now folks that doesn't mean that dave is one of those weird guys that lives in his mom's basement in his mom's basement yeah it's it's not that way no but with the a i'm the youngest and with the age gaps i think chris left the house as soon as he could even before college sean dropped out of college and moved to chicago to do his thing for a long time and then you know we left dad long before that so yeah it was just you and me for a while and and for various different like important iterations of you know me switching schools me I dropped out for a year you were going through major life changes before you moved uh to Texas to pursue a relationship so yeah like we went through a lot together um but yeah I feel like that allows us to have you know heavy substantive conversations including a lot of like big heavy life events and I feel like I I was thinking of things that my generation has experienced that are like not necessarily generationally defining moments because so like 9-11 is one of them. You oh, experienced 9-11 and so did I, but... Yes, on, on the very same day. Yeah, on the very same day. Um, but it is something that is, I, I feel like will be... A, like the Kennedy assassination is something that was like your generation. Yes. And while your parents were alive during that, I just for some reason I just feel like that is assigned to your generation because it, you just knew that the fallout of this event is what your generation is going to have to grow up with. Mm-hmm. And very much so like that's while there are uh, you know, myriad of people that experienced of different age groups that experienced nine 11 was really my generation that was going to be the first to experience the brunt of this new Patriot act. Privacy is uh, a lot more subjective now and, giving up individual liberties in the name of protecting and fighting terrorism and, and, and everything like that. So I was thinking about things that have happened in my generation's time that have been pretty, um, I guess, defining for that and, and the things. And I'm curious what you think those things are for you. Uh, but for my generation, I would say it's 9-11, um, which I guess I'm, I feel fortunate that, you know, that happened when I was 18. So I, I guess it's a good thing that there was 18 years of life that transpired without there being, not to say that there weren't bad things, like the Oklahoma City bombing happened. Yeah. But that, I don't, while that was terrible, it didn't have the weight and magnitude of, like, I, I actually don't think it changed the world. 9-11 changed the world. Um, well, I th- but, think the... Um the day that Kurt Cobain killed himself was very impactful. Allegedly. 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 Yeah. There's a lot of theories and some pretty convincing either evidence or uh, things that you, when you connect the dots, it shows that his shitty wife, Courtney Love, uh, was deeply involved in it. One of the things was is that Kurt had, when they did the autopsy, he had, so, he had such an insane amount of heroin in his body that it would just not be anatomically possible for, so he shot himself with a shotgun yes and the coordination and just physical strength that it would take to like aim it yeah like flip a shotgun around and probably like pull it with your toe or something while pointing at your face well then we'll have to discuss this we another, will another we will time. with visual aids and so whatnot, the but point that you were getting to i'm sorry no but the, but no but that is a good one to bring bring it up that wasn't even on my list but i think well, that that's a good point is that things that changed life for my generation i guess in chronological order would be the death of Kurt Cobain, which I believe was 94. I remember we were on Easter vacation. vacation. I remember coming out of my bedroom and Chris was crying in front of the TV as Kurt Loader on MTV was announcing Kurt's suicide. 9-11. And then like the next thing that my mind goes to is COVID 
And I, there are other awful things that happened in that time period. But again, I'm thinking about something that like literally changed the course of the world. And then not too far after that would be the January 6th insurrection. Like I, I feel like, I mean, you sure as hell did not experience anything like that in America in your lifetime up to that period, right? No, I was, I was absolutely appalled at what I was watching on January 6th. And I, I couldn't believe this was happening to our our respected and uh, revered Capitol building that you and I had. Yeah, we'd stood <clears throat> we stood on those stairs one winter day. I think it's easy to shit on individual politicians, even the job, even just like the concept of like oh oh you're these are all like even the word politics gets used. Like, oh, these internal politics or the politics of the workplace or whatever. Like, politics has a negative stigma to it. And I get it. And there's bad things. There's bad people. There's bad things that happen on all sides, all parties, whatever. But when you go to a place like the Senate building, the nation's capital, you go, even the Washington Monument, the Lincoln Monument, when you go to the Vietnam Memorial, like, when you stand in these places, you are overcome with... You feel it. Like there is a presence there. There's the weight of the history. Yeah. And there's something really cool about that that I hope most people can experience because I think it helps add perspective of like, we're not just like, as a country, we're not just like, oh, it's just, I'm glad that things have worked out and we're just some haphazardly strewn together. Uh, Like there's a lot of work that has gone into keeping a, a geographically gigantic country with 50 different subsegments and within those subsegments, you know, diametrically opposed groups of people. Like it's it's impressive that we've lasted as long as we have, but it's also we've you know had incredible um, problems and adversity, and there's huge swaths of the population that have been treated as subhuman for way too long and but anyway when you stand in these places you realize that like this is where the glue is come is being created that is that has held our country together so far for better or worse but the reality is you're standing in the epicenter of what the foundation of the beginning of our country and uh certainly you know huge list of of historic events that have happened there so anyways regardless of who was in power or what politicians you like or don't like regardless of whoever held certain job positions at that time, the fact that an angry mob of people is, it's not just that angry people raided a government building, their specific intention of derailing a core fundamental trigger point of democracy. The January 6th is the confirmation of the results of of the the election election where the existing administration acknowledges it and that is the beginning of the peaceful transfer of power and as much of a piece of shit that i think he is mike pence did the right thing which that shouldn't he shouldn't get a pat on the back for it he did his job and he did what every other fucking vice president has done up to this point where they acknowledged the tabulated and verified and challenged and then reaffirmed results of the election and that there was a gigantic group of violent, angry people who stormed the Capitol with the specific intent of... So anyway, these are the events that I feel like are going to have implications for the rest of my life. And I'm curious when you think back on your life, what some of those events were. I I named the assassination of Kennedy. What are some other ones that you can think of? Not your life, but your childhood. The things that you think are assigned to your generation as like defining... Uh, The polio vaccine was developed... It saved my sister's life. Yeah. Um, and what she got was rather experimental. And and my parents were asked, <clears throat> this, this hasn't really been tried and tested, but we but it's very powerful and we want to use this. So so your sister Treva, she had polio? She did. And what in what year would you say this was? Ish. Ballpark. Forty, uh, maybe forty-seven. No, you're 40, born forty-five, and you're born in forty-eight. Eight. Okay. She was born in forty-three. So maybe it was forty-eight or, or forty-seven. Was polio still uh, an active concern among children when you were born? Yes, I remember uh, seeing films of people inside iron lungs and explain what an iron lung is because i'm pretty sure a lot of people don't know what that is well it's it's almost like a a tubular coffin yep 
and uh, it breathes for you. The pressure that it's able to maintain yep. inside that that coffin uh, keeps you alive yep. because your muscles with polio have stopped functioning in order to allow you to breathe, and all all that sticks out is your head. And you have a little mirror, so you can kind of see what's going on behind you. Mm-hmm. I really don't know how someone didn't go nuts living in an iron lung. Yeah, because you might be physically incapacitated, but if your mind is functional, you know, like you're, you feel imprisoned. So do you remember when I was a kid, um, how big of a problem polio was and how it plagued, like, you know, it was like 50% of the kids in my class had polio do you remember that no oh why do you why do you think that is because everyone got the vaccine oh so everyone got microchips and 5g so you are a part of a giant government experiment i beg to differ you kowtowed to the government you gave up all your personal liberties your sister obviously would have survived if she just toughed it out a little bit and your parents were just like she's a big girl she'll be fine Okay, obviously being sarcastic. This is, it's fucking maddening to me is that with what we've been going through with the COVID vaccine is like, this is not our first rodeo as a country, even for the people who are still alive. Like, like I, I, this is very judging a book by its cover, but from what I see, I see a lot of people in, in between your gen, maybe more so your generation. And then in between your generation and my generation, there's 37 years between you and me, I feel like it is a people older than me on average are more hesitant or resistant to taking the vaccine and more susceptible to misinformation. And that is, it perplexes me because we are here in the numbers that we are in here because of this is, we've gone through this multiple times. Uh, Smallpox. Smallpox was a big one. Measles, mumps, rubella, because I got measles. I got mumps. So did my sister. Yeah. Um, I, and this is again like the the thing I was joking with about with the polio is that I mean I will bring that up with these da- oh, I don't know it's, is it FDA approved and I was like when is the last time that you had fucking rubella or even heard about anyone having it like it's just I, it, it, I unfortunately I, I I have to think of this as a failing of our public education system like yes parents should do a better job of equipping their children for the world but this really does seem to come down to a fundamental understanding of the role of science not just as a course in school and then some people become scientists but like everything that we do is connected to the sciences it, it can be you know the physical sciences the arc, um you know architectural sciences but certainly medical and food and everything like that and it's like we rely on science so much that we've gone past the tipping point of like, we become immune, like numb to it. Like it's just, we're apathetic. It's like, okay, yeah, whatever. I just, if it's on the shelf, it's fine. And I can buy it. It's not going to poison me. And you don't think about the fact that like the amount of formulating and testing and trial and error and approval and rejection and, and everything that goes into everything at Walgreens or whatever. And it, it sucks how much I, you know, I'd be really curious to know. It sounds like you, you would have been too young, but like if there was any aspect of politicization, whatever, for the polio vaccine, which really did, that really in a big way affected very young children, right? Yes, very young children. I I rather doubt that there was any kind of protest or uh, something back. Um, oh, backlash? Backlash yeah. uh, to this. Do you, I mean, do you think a big part of that is because this the at this point in time, there's what, three, four TV channels? There, there's nothing, the the distribution of information and even editorial people's opinions on the news or current events was so limited in scope compared to now. Yes, definitely. Where not only do you have access to, from radio, podcasts, TV, satellite, everything like that, you have huge amounts of information coming at you, but now we have these platforms where we as individuals can get on our own soapbox and spew stupid, ignorant, hateful shit and be a huge part of the propagation of completely unvetted misinformation. I feel that when I grew up, science and medicine was highly respected. Yeah. People diss science now. And that's very upsetting to me. It's tremendously upsetting to me. And I try to, anytime, especially 
coming in and out of, and although we're still in the era of Trump, it's very important to me, certainly in these extreme examples of politics, but even stuff with like relationships, business, music, whatever, like as soon as there's something I don't understand, or I have this gut knee jerk reaction of like, nope, that's wrong. I don't like it. I immediately try to put myself in the shoes of the person I disagree with or the person who disagrees with me or the person that I think is wrong. Or even if I, and I'm using air quotes, know that they're wrong, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. And it's a great exercise in empathy. And it's just a great mental exercise in terms of like, by questioning the things that you think you know, a lot of times you reaffirm the fact that, yes, that is correct, but it's always worth revisiting information to see if it is in fact still the most current information. And there were just certain things, certain behaviors that have emerged in my adult lifetime that I just don't get and I don't get making science the enemy like it's like Dr. Fauci is not some like new character he's not someone that like just achieved medical prominence in his like late 60s he has earned that position as the leading viral scientist in his field and through his time at the World Health Organization and the CDC for like multiple administrations, which should also mean like it's apolitical. Like science is science, regardless of who is in the Oval Office. Mm -hmm. And we as a population, as our like national brand has seemed to change that. Like even when Trump was in office, the, I believe it was the FDA and all basically internal mem like the the phrase global warming had to be removed from uh administrative process so you could talk about like i think climate change was acceptable yeah but the phrase global warming or maybe that's maybe those two things are reversed but like just being like I, I i don't understand there's things we can disagree on um but if something is is if the scientific consensus is xyz then that is what makes it fact so you can like have an opinion on fact but it doesn't change the fact that that is fact that has been verified and tested with hypotheses and seer and theories and experiments and peer-reviewed journals and it's just it's very upsetting that in I think it's easy for younger generations to look back at older generations and be like, oh, nine out of 10 doctors recommend smoking cigarettes to get some hair on your chest and, you know, be a good American. Uh, and every school should be filled with asbestos and lead paint's the best paint. And, you know, all these, uh, who needs seatbelts when you're driving in a Cadillac that looks that good? You know, like all of these things have happened that's really easy to look back on and be like, how the fuck did this generation even survive to make me? <laughs> right. But then it's crazy to look at our generation or at least what's happening during my adult lifetime and be like, there's shit that's happening right now. That's super easy to identify as like, of, I mean, I feel like we're already identifying it in real time of like, how the fuck is there millions of people that reject some of the most basic core tenets of science and, and, and think that it's some Q driven conspiracy, let alone are these are going to be things that we look back at in 30 years when I'm talking to my niece, your granddaughter, when she's a teenager, be like, yeah, there was, there was a point in time where, you know, like all of these uh, impactful things that have happened with like even disenfranchised minority populations, like the fact that, uh, like when when you have conversations with your granddaughter, it, it's interesting hearing the unbiased perspectives of a child because she hasn't she doesn't understand any kind of like she's not jaded by anything right that's a good word yeah and so i, I can't imagine I, I mean i suppose some of these things i i experienced for the first time but like understanding that like at a certain point in time my brain became introduced to the concept and then evolved to believe or just whatever that it all inequality of course from the very beginning from scratch when we start making friends and, and meeting people and, you know, play dates and kindergarten or whatever, like you're not looking around the room and being like that girl with pigtails shouldn't be able to vote. And that person with darker skin than me is probably a thief. Like these are societal constructs and stereotypes and terrible things that are like programmed into you. And it's, it's just crazy to think that like we learn about the fact that like, oh, it's a, it was a huge achievement that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was able to help women have mortgages and credit cards. That's crazy to me that like it because you have a vagina, like it's so weird to me 
that in your lifetime, there were some of these advancements where I was like, the rest of the world, the whatever, a huge portion of this of the uh, industrialized first world country nations have already been doing these things. And they've already had women as leaders and minorities as leaders. And it's we, it's we get very wrapped up in the fact that America is the greatest country in the world. And therefore, we are the litmus test for everything when, in fact, we're the new kid on the block for so many of these things. So it's a huge achievement that we've had a black president. And it's like... We're only 200 and some years old and we've had minority leaders. They're not even minorities, just be non-white leaders all over the fucking planet. But we fucking plant a flag in the moon about that one because America has been so ass backwards since the beginning. And it's just crazy to think that even in your lifetime and now still happening in my lifetime, like gay marriage becoming federally legal and in my lifetime. And then like even what's happening right now, specifically in Texas, with abortion in my lifetime, like that these crazy things that have like direct severe impact on the way that Americans, fellow Americans, citizens, you're, you know, a, a, a gay, a gay woman who wants to get an abortion, who is not a felon, who is not an illegal alien, who has done nothing that should have her have any less rights than the straight white guy sitting across from around the bus. That we're still in this day and age where subsects of the government can be making decisions that impede their right to life, liberty, and happiness. It's just, it's fucking crazy to me that these things are still happening. And it's easy to, again, well, I was got on a big tangent there, but to look back at your generation and, and say that like, oh, this is, uh, the, the parents did this. They fucked up the world for us. I was like, no, they, these things are still happening. And while there are a lot of older decision makers still in place, people in my generation are the ones that are voting for Ted Cruz. Like they're, I mean, some of them, like you don't have some of these awful people in their offices without people from multiple generations voting to keep them there. And it's just, it's interesting to think about how events in your life have led to this, but then also how my own generation has contributed to fucking things up. I, uh, as, as you were talking and I was uh, trying to think of the things that influenced my childhood, a loss of, of innocence happened. Um, Would you say Kennedy was a huge catalyst for that or was it happening before then? I think it was happening before that, but yes, Kennedy was... We became really afraid after Kennedy was shot. Whereas before, we just kind of went, la, 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 life is good. Um, didn't really think about the fact that something like this could happen. But I'm thinking of, um, like, when I was a kid, there was this uh, jerk in Chicago uh, named Richard Speck. And he killed and maimed a number of nurses in their apartment. And we had never heard this kind of thing on the news before. And it, it was very, very frightening to what, think. What time period would you say this was? In the early 60s, I think. Come. Okay. Uh, and as this before, was Kennedy assassinated in 64? Three, I think. Okay. Oh, gee. I didn't. Whatever. It's, it's, fine, it's fine to not remember. It just, it's curious to know that there are some like things, this like loss of innocence, especially paired with the 60s being this like on paper. If you had to go through right now and just do like one sentence for each decade, the 60s would probably be like one sentence. How would you describe the 60s? Aside from what you just said in, in the broadest sense, love and peace. Great music. Yeah, groovy, <laughs> tight, you know, like psychedelic colors, Woodstock, like Peace, just man. Yeah, yeah, in the in the broadest sense, it is depicted as love. Yeah, and I would say that was an experience while I was in college. Yeah, like sixty six to seventy. Sure. Although I imagine my parents were very frightened for me to be away from home. Yeah. In this era of uh, free love and. All this jazz. So, one thing that did happen in the late 60s was Kent State. Yes. And that was another loss of innocence. And can you describe what that is? Because I think a lot of people, I think that might be something that a lot of people don't have top of mind. This was um, an incident at a college in Ohio in May of 66, I believe. There was a lot of demonstrating going on about the Vietnam War. And uh, people felt pretty entitled to be able to demonstrate and speak their mind and make signs and stuff. Somebody got freaked out at the at the university or at Kent State uh, when people were um, attempting 
to um, say their say what they thought yeah. about the war, and they called in the National Guard, and I don't think that the National Guard had ever done anything like that before. And because usually the National Guard is defending the nation. It's like it's it's supposed to be in the most general sense the army that's always here, right? So like the actual armed forces are out defending against enemies. I know that it's foreign and domestic, but for the most part, you know, like they're in Vietnam. So the National Guard is there to help with like... Help us. Yeah, natural disasters, you know, crazy things that happen. If there was an invasion, like the National Guard would be called up. But I think that this might be one of the first really prominent examples of our own forces being called in to suppress the actions of Americans. College students. Yeah. And college students ended up being killed. Yeah. And this was, this was inconceivable. And... uh I think it it caused my generation to take a sharp turn in attitude and trust, trust of government. So look at that the, the dichotomy of those two things that happened in a 10-year span. And there were things leading up to in the 50s and certainly long-standing ramifications after the fact. But within the 60s, something that we just described as, and I think most people in the most general sense would agree, is the 60s is love and peace or whatever. You know, it's, it's the psychedelic 60s. It's the, you know... Peace, love, and happiness. But you, did, you didn't have to dress like everybody else. Sure. You could be an individual. But this is also the same time period where not only is a president assassinated, it happens on national TV. Um, you start getting introduced to the idea of like literal real life psychopaths, serial killers, and that, and that narrative and the details of it being told sometimes night after night over the news. Um, you have, I think, leading up to the Vietnam War, the idea of the United States involvement in military engagements has been this like unimpeachable without a doubt. Like it, it's, it is the living embodiment of patriotism that like it's an honor to enlist and we don't even need to do the draft because we're fuck. Yeah. Like, yeah, we're going to go kill the Nazis or whatever. And that, you know, there's ticker tape parades and, and do whatever you can. And the fact that the fact that wars even like stimulated American economy in a way that we'd never seen before. Like there's been all these obviously terrible things came out of world war one and two, but like the perception of war in America during those time periods in the early 1900s was like, we are the good guys and we're fighting the good fight. And we're going to take care of these men and women when they come home. And then Vietnam happens which coincided with the war on drugs and also like just it just feels like I truly feel like not that I'm an American historian. It seems like the most change that has ever happened in modern history, you know, we'll just say everything past the Civil War or maybe everything past Jim Crow era, the most transformative change that would have multi-generational lasting consequences was the 60s. Yeah. And so much of it was so dark and scary and negative. So it's amazing that decades later, it can still have this in the most simplistic form. Like, oh yeah, love and happiness mm-hmm. and murder. And the fact that, so do you remember on, uh, so 9-11, I was in high school and you and I have family that were inside the Pentagon and yes. in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And very thankfully, they're all alive but they experienced terrible things. And I remember coming home, you coming home from work and me walking home from school because yeah, we, they wouldn't let me leave school because they hadn't accepted the fact that we were being attacked. We didn't have cell phones. So nope. Dave and I couldn't communicate about the fact that we both knew this had happened, but we didn't really know what was yep. happening, but we had to get home. And then I remember even when we got home, we had numbers for Uncle Steve and Antar and Cousin Kathy, but we couldn't call them. Remember that? Remember that? Like the phones the, are all the system, jammed like, up. Like literally, just the, our the things that we take totally for granted just became removed, including <laughs> safety from terrorism. We would never think that this could happen. That never crossed my mind. And I remember the almost immediate feeling of like identifying it based on nothing other than fear, but just identifying what's the next target. And I remember a very common thought was like, don't go to Walmart. Like, don't go to big places. Like, ooh, this high school sporting event or this shopping mall or concert. Like, all large gatherings of people are now a potential target of mass death, which is a crazy feeling. And I'm trying to think of how you felt, you and your generation, when I think it's easy to think of, even now, given uh, Secret Service and everything, that, like, the president of any administration is arguably one of the most protected people on the planet. And if that person can be executed on 
live TV in broad daylight during a parade. Like, do you recall either how you felt about that or like what your parents said or like any, like, did it feel like if that can happen, then like literally anyone can die or like, I'm just curious how that got extrapolated in the same way that, well, if the twin towers can go down, the Walmart in Waukesha, Wisconsin can go down. Like, was there, I'm curious if there was those like leaps in logic. I'm sure there were. Um, My parents didn't talk a lot about anything political or government related. Um, I remember once asking them, who did you vote for when Nixon and Kennedy were running against each other? And and they said, that is not something that that we discuss. Why do you think that is? I I think they like playing a good card game. You held your your cards close to your chest. This wasn't something that was anybody else's business, but, but their own. Do you remember, so that's like a specific action, like I voted for this, but what about just identifying as like Republican or Democrat? Did your parents ever have any kind of, not even a conversation, but just like I, Bob Jones, who's my grandpa, your, your, your dad, I'm a Republican or whatever. Like, did, do you ever even know, like, did they clearly identify as either no, of those? No, oh, I didn't know that. Um, I knew he hated Richard J. Daley, the mayor of Chicago. Of Chicago. <laughs> And you, you grew up in a suburb of Chicago. Yes, so. I did. Okay. And there was lots of um, criminal stuff going on in, in a big city like like, like Like corruption stuff. Corruption, yeah. Okay. But that's about the only thing I ever heard my dad uh, express his opinion about politically. Gotcha. But getting back to um, Kennedy, well, one of the reasons that it was so easy to shoot Kennedy is he wasn't in a bulletproof car. He wasn't in a car with a top on it. We didn't believe it was necessary. Well, I mean, but I, I can immediately understand that from both sides. Like, obviously, in retrospect, it's super easy to be like, why the fuck wasn't he? Why wasn't he in a Pope mobile type thing? But also, like, if you haven't had presidents executed in public before during a parade... Why would you put forth the time and effort and bandwidth and, and resources to keep him protected from something that you didn't feel like you actually needed to keep it him protected? It couldn't happen, yeah. It just... I think every other presidential assassination, either attempt or success that has ever happened, has been like literally at point blank. Like Lincoln, back of the head mm. in a theater. Um, I believe Roosevelt had an attempt made on him and it was the bullet was caught either partially or entirely by uh, like a notepad or a Bible or something. And is there have been other attempts, but it's been like up close. Yeah. And this was a whole nother thing where you like you can't see the enemy, which has led to decades of speculation of CIA involvement. And we have a question in the front row. Can I change the subject? Sure. <laughs> uh, bug spray. Okay, sounds good. But real quick, just while last comment on that loss of innocence, you were talking to me while we were not recording about your father losing his job. Yes, and this happened in about 1962, uh, no, maybe 61. I've forgotten, I'm sorry. Um, I was very fortunate <clears throat> to grow up in Oak Park, Illinois. Yeah. It's a... Absolutely beautiful western suburb. Um, Frank Lloyd Wright did a tremendous amount of his work there. Mm-hmm. And um, I lived right literally down the street from his home and studio. So every day when I would walk to school, I would pass the home and studio, which, you know, became the norm for me that I, li- I, I lived in a neighborhood with phenomenally big houses and my house was pretty darn big too sure. and uh my parents threw a lot of parties and, and um <clears throat> i had nice clothes and uh christmases were ridiculous um i mean we we lived a very good life sure um we had a live-in maid um what, with, was, what was her name corinne corinne threat i loved her um yeah, she lived with, with us. Uh, and then, um, and and my dad lost his job. And What was his job? He was vice president of a company that I don't think they manufactured, but they represented the distribution of AeroSeal hose clamps. Okay. It's very specific. He traveled a lot yeah. to sell his product. Anyway, the 
it all fell apart. And, um, and life just changed completely. My mom had to go to work. Um, I Did you have other friends whose moms worked? Or was that very uncommon? That's uncommon. Okay. And uh, little things, like my mom used to get her hair done. She couldn't get her hair done anymore. Yeah. She spent a lot of time in the garden. The garden turned to weeds. As I was getting older, uh, you know, of course, I kept growing. had to get new clothes, but I didn't get new clothes. I got hand-me-downs and uh, thrift store clothes. Yeah. And um, and I, I assume Miss Threet was no longer living with yeah, you. Yeah, Corrine was gone. Um, no more parties. Uh, and I remember Mom saying one night, all she had to feed the three of us one night, because my sister was already out of the nest, um, was a hot dog. A hot dog. Yeah. So it made me sad, but also it was kind of like a really good reality check. Sure. I mean, like knowing that what seems like, of course, this is going to be the rest of my life. Of course, I'm going to grow up with this living maid. Of course, you know, mom is always going to be able to be looking fancy and good. And like when those things are taken away from you, and we had a similar chapter of that in our and yours in my life. When, yeah. when we left dad, I remember that first Christmas, we had like a handmade gift exchange. And because it just wasn't in the cards to be buying gifts for each other or anything like that. And that wasn't even a top priority, just the fact that we could be together. Also, I was a stay-at-home mom for you guys. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but yeah. then when our life changed, I had to go to work. Yeah. Um, and as a kid, I hated coming home to an empty house. Why? Why I don't like dusk. As soon as dusk hits, even now, 100 billion years later, I have to turn on about 10 lights in the house. Yeah. And, and it just because I associate it with being alone. Well, I very much so appreciate the fact that you were a badass and went back to work and you did a wide variety of things before going to Casio, which is where I felt like you really found your sweet spot, right? Thank you. Yeah. And my confidence. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but you'd done like retail and you'd worked at a school and you did other things. Like you got the jobs that you could, which is very much what it was like for I, me when I got out of college. I was like, a lunch lady. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, for what it's worth, I enjoyed being alone when I got home. Um, Cause it gave me, I could go and like play my drums as loud as I could. And I used to like, like to scream along when I was playing <laughs> it. I know you were always great about uh, letting me practice Pretty much every single day on drums, and it doesn't matter if I'm in the basement and you're upstairs and the doors closed. Like it's, it's you can hear it from outside. It, it, it permeates the entire house. But I just remember that there'd be certain times where I'd be like screaming along with drumming, and you'd be like, "Honey, I love you, but if you could just not do that part." <laughs> well, one of our houses didn't have a basement door, <laughs> and uh, which house? I think it was the ranch house. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking, yeah, you're correct. We, we didn't have basement door. It just kind of, you walked in from the garage and if you went left was stairs down uh -huh. and straight was just like into the rest of the house. You were correct. We could have put up some like beads or something. Well, I think they, I wore earplugs because if I was doing laundry while you were playing drums, <laughs> I had to go down to the basement. Yes. But anyway. I feel like I would uh, usually stop if you can. I mean, I, as someone who has ear damage, I'm very sympathetic to the fact of how scary loud drums are. So I would like to think I was not that much of an asshole that I would just well that's what you think <laughs> that's okay speaking of the loss of innocence and speaking of that time period I'm curious if we don't have to talk about this if you don't want to but I still want to talk about bugs okay and we'll, we'll get to bugs spray. last comment on loss of innocence your sweet baby boy me was arrested three times for disorderly conduct before turning 18 which is important because it's not on my record um, but I just really enjoyed vandalism. Like, it was very cathartic for me. I loved the danger of, like, sneaking out of the house. You were never, you never endorsed it. You were never complicit. You would never want me to do it. So I'm, in no way am I saying, like, this is no fault of, like, you were anything Negligent. but. Yes. <laughs> um, but I loved it. And there were three different times that I got caught indirectly each time. That's, that doesn't matter. You're nor there. But <laughs> did were you worried about your baby, when those kinds of events were happening. And, you know, factor in things that I was like, Dean's List at school, and, like, you and I had a great relationship, and, like, was the fact that you knew that I was also capable of, like, destruction just for entertainment's sake and sneaking out when you would... I mean, basically, I lied to you 
with my actions. It's very disappointing. Disappointing. I get that, and I accept that. But were were there longer term implications that you thought it had at the time? Like, oh, Dave's going to go down the wrong path if he thinks it's funny to. No, I think I believed video games and heavy metal music was going to do you guys in more than <laughs> anything else. Uh, no, I. I don't think it. I don't think my mind went there too much. Okay. Um, I mean, I'm I'm sure that at the moment, like I can remember, you were hiding somewhere, and it was a cold night, yeah. and I remember standing outside <clears throat> our front door, yelling into the cold night, Dave. Yeah. And no answer. I had no idea where you were. I knew you were in trouble, and. Uh, in that particular scenario, me and two of my really smart friends, who are still great friends to this day, decided it would be very funny to take uh, a gigantic, like, 12-foot-wide piece of poster board and write, go fuck yourself in huge, dark letters on bright white poster board and create, like, a finish line, like a, a, a very taut line of duct tape from a stop sign to a streetlight and have this huge sign floating in the middle of the road. Absolutely could not miss it. It's underneath a streetlight huge poster board, giant black letters. And the joke was supposed to be the, the, just the enjoyment of seeing someone drive up to that and get out of their car and be like, what the fuck? And maybe it's a old man shakes his fist in the night sky and says, damn you kids. Uh, that's not how it went down. Um, there was a towny bar, uh, about a half mile away called bogeys that a gentleman had left and had clearly been drinking and he was swerving and he was being followed by cops. And I think that the guy driving was much more concerned about the fact that there were three cops following him. And he ended up like plowing through this. And it was like heavily reinforced to get this like 12 foot wide piece of poster board to float in the middle of the air. So this guy hit it so hard with his car and he kept going. I'm sure it drastically impeded his ability to drive because he had this <laughs> he's drunk and he has this giant thing of poster board but it like jerked the like it like ripped the stop sign forward and those things are like concreted into the oh. ground and two of the cops that were there were several cops on this but two of the cops immediately peeled off onto the street that we were hiding on which just so happened to be the street that i lived on which was the terrible plan i'm not never claimed to be a good criminal um and then at that point in time so it was me jimmy and rj jimmy immediately hopped a fence and went into a cemetery and got away immediately. <laughs> I went the opposite direction and just started darting into the neighborhood. And the whole neighborhood was like street row of houses, big fence, row of houses, street row of houses, big fence, row of houses. And I just started running away from the house. RJ in his infinite wisdom ran right back to my house and where he had his truck parked. And it was just very easy for the cops to like follow him to my house. And then they woke you up cause you were sleeping there. Um, but so Jimmy gets away immediately. I had this like 25 minute long chase where the cops would like got out of their squad cars and they were right behind me. There were two times where they had me like by the belt and I just like did a little shimmy and then hopped over. And like, I think they were weighed down by being fat asses and also having like, you know, flashlight and cuffs and like really weighing them down. So they couldn't hop over the fences as much as I could. And there was one point where they had me pinned between like, I could see their flashlights and there was, I was in uh, the backyard of a house and there was a cop on each side and they were coming around. I could see their flashlights and I was wearing all black and I just curled up in a ball next to this barbecue grill and just, I had a black hat. I pulled that over my face. I was wearing a leather jacket. I pulled my hands inside of that and I just curled up into a ball and just sat there. And I swear to God, one of the cops was standing right next to me. I could have just reached out and grabbed his ankle as he's, you know, looking around with his flashlight. And my heart was beating so hard that I thought they're going to hear the like, dum, 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 dum. <laughs> didn't see me drove away. And well, I come I home. Hope you had a good time. I, I mean, that part wasn't fun. It was like miraculous to like survive that. And then I feel like I'm on top of the world only to come home and be like, Oh, RJ ran straight to the fucking house and got arrested. And you were super upset. And, uh, I never enjoyed upsetting you or having you disappointed in me. So I'm sorry about that, but, um, I haven't done it since on the straight and narrow. Thank so, you. uh, let's talk about bug spray. All right. So just in meandering through my mind about childhood experiences, um, on a hot summer night, when I was growing up, mm -hmm. um, we had these trucks that would come out and spray the whole town um, because we had what's called Dutch elm disease. 
uh, it's a beetle that that kills trees. And um, so these trucks with a big yellow flashing light would go slowly up and down the streets spraying this DDT stuff. Yeah. Which it, back in the, I think this was probably the late 50s. Or, yeah, probably late 50s. I don't think they realized that that stuff could mess you up. Uh-huh. So. Just like all, asbestos and lead paints and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. All the kids got on their bikes and followed the truck, which was spreading this massive fog of DDT throughout the neighborhood. And we just thought it was so cool because you kind of get lost in the fog and the um, the yellow light is flashing and it's dark out and, and nobody thought anything of it. I don't remember any parent ever saying, why are you doing that? You shouldn't have been doing that. But, but you know, we could be out after dark and, and we didn't have to worry about getting kidnapped or anything usually the rule was come home when the street lights, the street lights are on yeah would you like to know why your parents probably didn't question it well, well nobody knew right well yeah or what what fact do you have here? ddt was synthesized by austrian chemist othmar ziedler in 1874 its insecticidal effects were discovered in 1939 by swiss chemist paul Hermann Müller. during world war ii it was used to fight typhus typhus and malaria and in 1945 the fda approved it for public insecticide use there you go i don't want to like science is imperfect and science is always learning from previous science and then improving upon itself that's kind of the whole point of having theories and experiments is that you continue to refine data my point is is that it it you can find an incredible list of horrifying things that were approved by the FDA at one point. And it's for the most part, I don't think it's out of negligence or, you know, big tobacco making huge payoffs. It's just that the, the, the science and the time needed to substantiate concerns or to show correlation and causation between cigarettes and lung cancer and asbestos and mesothelioma and shit like that. It's, Takes time. So when with like vaccine hesitancy, the fact that so many people are like, oh, it's not approved by the FDA yet. And it's like, you don't like, there's just this easily accessible historical record of how many times the FDA has been wrong. And then again, just that general failing of our, I think our public education to, for just people to understand like how long science takes. It's not a coin flip. It's not something that has immediate gratification or, and there's only one it's binary it's either safe or it's not. It's just, there's endless different scenarios of how does it react in children? How does it react in different populations? How does it uh, react when it's exposed to other combined elements? And so it's just, it sucks that we're still in 2021 and people uh, rely on the things that they do. Yeah. I feel like it's kind of a badge of honor for me to say here in 2021 at the age of 73 that I survived my childhood. Mm -hmm. Can you think of some other things that maybe weren't the best? uh, Like if a doctor was able to pick and choose what activities you did as a kid? Oh, well, I fell off my bike a hundred times. Sure. Do, did I ever have a helmet or knee pads or mm-hmm. elbow pads? No. Mm-hmm. I was one big scab as sure. a kid. How'd you uh, feel about uh, uh, glue and rubber cement? Oh, I loved sniffing <laughs> big, rubber cement. Big fan? And airplane glue. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's the good yes. stuff. That's the good stuff. Yeah, the boys would eat the white school paste, but I sniffed the rubber cement. Yeah, you were a refined lady. You you mm. not, you're not slumming it with the Elmer's <laughs> crowd. Um, what else? Well, just the fact that we didn't have safety belts till I was in high school. Yeah, kids stood up in the car. They they s- slept in the back window. It was cozy up there, you know, warm. Sure. Well, I'm really Um, excited and happy that you survived all of those things. Oh, yeah. Riding behind the the bug spray truck, uh, roller skating, um, just just trick-or-treating in the dark at night. Sure. Yeah. Things that are no longer safe to do. So true. 
and again, weren't safe in the first place, but that wasn't the public consensus. Well, but I would like to thank um, Random Chance and uh, whatever creator there is and uh, the powers of chaos and everything like that that has allowed you to uh, survive to the point of giving birth to me and the survive, allowed me to survive and, and just everything. I feel like everything in both of our lives has led up to this moment right now of us sitting in my house in Austin, Texas and, and having this conversation. I'm so happy to be here. I'm happy to have you here. I love you very much. I love you very you're, much. You're my favorite mom on the whole planet <laughs> Un- uncontested number one world champion i think you're fantastic we have an exciting night ahead of us in austin texas we're going to wrap this up right now but there we have two big events that are going to happen uh in like the next third beginning in the next 30 minutes um can i tell you right now what we're going to do well oh, yes i would love because i don't know sure. i just know it's going to be a big deal yes so in 30 minutes, we're going to leave here and we're going to go to a place called Sushi Bar and we're going to have an 18-course omakase dinner that's present created by uh, like incredible sushi chefs in a very private, intimate setting about oh. the, the size of the room that we're sitting in right oh. now. And everything's paired with uh, sake and cocktails from oh, their uh, sake sommelier. And it's just a very ah. cool crew of people at the at the Sushi Bar ATX that it, this started as a pop-up during quarantine. It was, it's, it's. They're founded in LA and they came out here just during quarantine and then it just, be, their wait list became uh, in the tens of thousands and I feel very fortunate that I've formed some good uh, friendships over there and that when I reached out last week to see if they could get us in, they could. So I'm very excited about <laughs> oh, that. Oh, wonderful. So you're going to be nicely buzzed and full of, I mean, this I is, love sushi. This is, I promise this is going to be the best sushi you've ever had in your <laughs> entire life. And then after that, we're going on a ghost tour of Austin. Oh my gosh, I yes. love ghosts. I love being scared. I so know. you. There's going to be <laughs> so much death and dismemberment and <laughs> spookiness. So that's why I was saying that you need to have some comfortable shoes. So maybe we could just like bring your sketchers with or something. Bring them to the restaurant? I mean, whatever. We're, or we can like Uber back here. Whatever. We'll figure it out. It's all logistics. But I just want you to be comfortable because it's going to be going on for like two hours. And it's gonna be like a a hop on hop off kind of thing where we like stop off at places where terrible things have happened and a bunch of people have died and they're just spirits proliferating everything. So it's gonna be <laughs> thank you, awesome. Yeah, so I'm very excited about. Oh, I thought we were going line dancing. We we, we were gonna do that, but then that got canceled. And I was like, well, let's do a tour that's focused on dead people and suffering. Cool, because that's essentially what line dancing is to me. <laughs> dead people and suffering <laughs> mom i love you so much thank you for making me you're welcome i, I appreciate it <laughs> uh thank you everyone for listening to the mind Mel podcast with dave perry i'm dave perry this is the mind Mel podcast please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and if you do the social media although it's bad for your your health and your morale and self-esteem and everything like that if you're gonna do it you might as well find the mind Mel podcast on whatever shitty social channel you're on because i'm there and i'm posting behind the scenes clips and we're going to do a Patreon and all this other fun, neat shit. So, Mom, thank you so much. I love you. I love you. Bye. 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 <laughs> 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 <laughs>